Please be seated. Good evening to you. All right, Ezekiel chapter 42 this evening, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and uh, if you're with us tonight without a Bible, just flag one of the guys coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and they'll put one into your hand. If you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, tonight. Um, if you're just joining us in our study in Ezekiel and you weren't with us a couple of weeks ago, uh, there is a, a diagram of Ezekiel's temple that he's describing. Uh, and if you don't have that, just wave to one of these guys as well and they'll put one in your hand. Uh, it'll certainly make it easier for you to understand what we find ourselves kind of in the middle of and really nearing the end of as we come to this place now uh, in, in our study. We is we've got this um, uh, picking things up here in, in chapter 42. Uh, you have Ezekiel is being given a vision of the millennial temple, a temple that will be built uh, during the thousand year reign or the kingdom uh, reign of Jesus Christ following his second coming. And uh, the angel as he's, as, as Ezekiel is seeing this vision, uh, of the temple and be, being given a tour of it by this angelic being. Uh, this angelic, uh, this angel is also then calling out the measurements of, uh, of the temple area and uh, in order for uh, Ezekiel to, to record it. And uh, all of this, uh, this vision of uh, a future temple in the kingdom age was in order to communicate, you have to put yourself almost in the, the um, uh, though all of this is written to all of us, uh, Jews in, in the Old Testament, Christians to the whole world, if, if we'll listen, but you have to put yourself primarily in the position of those Jewish captives in the Babylonian captivity uh, in the suburb of Babylon known as Tel Aviv. And uh, as they have hit the low point of, uh, really, of Jewish history up to that point, a lower point was coming, and that was with the uh, Jewish people uh, in general rejecting and being blind to Jesus as their Messiah, and, uh, and His crucifixion, which was followed by His burial and His resurrection, and then ultimately uh, that generation lost the temple as well. Uh, to Rome and its destruction in 70 AD under Titus and the Roman legions that came in to put down that rebellion. But as they sit in Tel Aviv, they have blown it so massively big time. I mean, there's no words for it. Uh, I hate to use cliches, but they have. And while we can read uh, about all of this detail and it can become, uh, if we're not careful, it can become tedious to us but they would have treasured every verse of it and every line of it because it communicated to them that God was not through with them, that they had a future and they had a hope and they had a plan for, that God had for their lives that was going to reach all the way into the end of the age. And, and this is a part of the prophetic picture of the Bible uh, for us, even us as Christians. And, uh, and the prophetic element of the Bible speaks to us of the fact that uh, we have a future and a hope as well. So this would have been infusing massive um, hope and gratitude at the grace of God in their hearts as they would have heard uh, Ezekiel deliver this prophecy from God to them when they were just in the pit, of, as deep as a pit could be because of their, their failure. I never like to, I never congratulate audiences or congregations or anyone uh, for, you know, uh, treasuring God's Word or paying attention to God's Word. I think it builds weakness in our lives to, to do that. And so, uh, by God's grace, I, I never uh, do that. But uh, this can be a demanding section of Scripture, and I, I, do, I do think it's wonderful that we've come together. and and to allow it to have its needed work in our lives. Every section of Scripture is intended to accomplish something within us in terms of our personal relationship with the Lord, and uh, these chapters are, are no different. And so in uh, uh, chapter 42, 
the Lord, uh, Ezekiel continues to see uh, the vision of the entire kind of temple grounds. And uh, if you look at your diagram, uh, uh, that's in front of you and so you see the temple complex and all of the, the words that are there on the right and you go all the way down to four up from the bottom it says PC and it's the priest chambers that are described there just to the right and the left of the Holy of Holies there central to the temple and this is what he's describing now and then he brought me out into the outer court by the way of the north and he, that is the angel, brought me into the chamber, which was opposite the separating uh, courtyard, which was opposite the building toward the north. And facing the length was 100 cubits, the width uh, uh, was 50 cubits, was the north door, and a cubit being 18 inches in terms of of uh, its length, but it appears that Ezekiel is using a, a measurement of a cubit that is, is it was used historically from the elbow to the tip of your longest finger, but then they were using a hand width on top of it to add another four inches to it, and so I'll let you do the math, but it gives you an idea of, uh, of the length and the size of these rooms and these courtyards. And opposite the inner courtyard uh, of uh, of 20 cubits, verse 3, and opposite the pavement of the outer court was gallery against gallery and three stories. In front of the chambers toward the inside was a walk 10 cubits wide at a distance of one cubit, and their doors faced uh, north. Now the upper chambers were uh, shorter because of the galleries, because the galleries took away space from them more than from the lower and middle stories uh, of uh, 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 more than from the mid lower and middle stories of the building for they were in three stories and did not have pillars like the pillars of the courts and therefore the upper level was shortened more than uh, the lower and middle levels from the ground up so an idea of structurally how all of this came about. Uh, the purpose of the chambers is, is coming up uh, in just a moment. You can never have uh, enough storage in a church or in a home, and uh, this provides very specific storage. And a wall was outside, which was outside, ran parallel to the chambers. At the front of the chambers toward the outer court, its length was 50 cubits. The length of the chambers uh, toward the inner court was uh, 50 cubits, whereas the facing, uh, that facing the temple was 100 cubits. And so you see in your drawing uh, those two areas that are uh, in blocks there. One is half the size of the other. Uh, these uh, uh, priest chambers that were closest to the temple itself were twice as long as those on the outer, uh, outer area to allow uh, room for movement and then also uh, an, an entrance into that area from, uh, from the north and from the south. And the length of the chambers toward, uh, let's see, and then verse 9, at, at the lower chambers was the entrance on the east side as one goes into them from the outer court. And also there were chambers uh, in the thickness of the wall in the court toward the east, opposite the separating uh, courtyard, opposite the building, and uh, that's the shorter length of, of, uh, of the priest chambers. There was a walk in front of them, and their appearance was like the chambers of which were toward the north. Uh, they were as long and as wide as the others, and so on either side of the walkway, they were identical except in their length, and all their exits and entrances were according uh, to plan. And corresponding to the doors of the chambers that were facing south, as one enters them, there was a door in front of the walk, the way directly in front of the wall toward the east. And then the angel said to Ezekiel, uh, the north chambers and the south chambers, which are opposite the separating courtyard, are the holy chambers where the uh, priests who approach uh, the Lord uh, shall, number one, eat. And there are three purposes for those chambers. These were chamber areas, staging areas, really, for the priests. And um, so that they could uh, officiate and do their responsibilities without doing it 
uh, right in the area of the temple, though they had uh, immediate access to to the temple area. And it was a place where uh, the, the priests who approached the Lord shall eat the holy offerings. As was the case under the Old Testament offerings in the Law of Moses, uh, the priests that will operate during this time uh, will be sustained in terms of nutrition, in terms of food, from their portion, their allotment of the sacrifices of the offerings that were uh, that are are made to God. So it will be a place they are eating uh, food that has been sacrificed to God. It represents the worship of God's people, and so they can only eat it in in a holy place and in the area of these chambers. And uh, there they shall lay the, the most holy offerings, the grain offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering, for the place is holy. And so it was a place where as offerings would be brought by people that would be offered to God at the temple during that kingdom age, um, that uh, this is where they would be gathered in preparation for being offered to the Lord and storage area was required for that. And when the priests enter them, they shall not go out of the holy chamber into the outer court, but there they shall leave their garments in which they minister, for they are holy. They shall put on other garments, uh, then they may approach that which is for the people. So it was a place that was also uh, a changing area. When they, uh, when they were operating in their official capacity, when they do in their official capacity as the pr a priest, they will wear special garments in doing so. They're not to wear those garments uh, taking the bus home uh, or around the house or mowing their lawn or whatever to impress people or what, for any reason really. Um, uh, those garments were to be worn solely in connection with the worship of God in the area of, of this millennial temple and not to be worn anywhere else. And so that's the purpose of those priests' uh, chambers. And then he goes on to speak about the outer walls of the entire temple complex in verse 15. Now when he had finished measuring uh, the inner temple, he brought me out through the gateway that faces toward the east and he measured it uh, all around. And so you see all the way in the right hand of, of that drawing, you see a gateway on the east, a gateway that allows you to enter the complex uh, from all the way you know, outside from the common area. And uh, so Ezekiel is brought there to that gateway that faces the east, and the angel measured it all around. He measured the east side with the uh, measuring rod, and uh, 500 rods by the measuring rod all around. And a rod is different than a cubit. It's much longer uh, than that. So he's measuring this outer wall that surrounds the entire complex, and, uh, and the east side measures 500 rods in, in its length. He measured the north side, 500 rods as well. And then he measured, verse 18, the south side with an identical measurement. And then he came uh, around to the west side and measured 500 rods by the measuring rod. And he measured it out on the four sides. And it had a wall all around, 500 uh, cubits long and 500 uh, wide to separate the holy uh, areas from the common. And so you have these walls that are, in terms of their length, are about 875 feet long and uh, in a square. And uh, the square footage within the area of those walls would, uh, I'll save you having to uh, tabulate it yourself, it's uh, 765,625 uh, uh, square uh, feet. And you could uh, put more than 13 uh, football fields uh, in that area that, that uh, is being described to Ezekiel in this millennial temple. And then as he comes now to uh, chapter 43, uh, afterward he brought me, that is Ezekiel, to the gate. Uh, the gate that faces toward uh, the east. And again, it is this, this outer gate, that gate that is the farthest gate on the east. Uh, for those of you who have, have some familiarity with Jerusalem and the Temple Mount area today, this is the area that looks uh, over the Kidron Valley and across the Kidron Valley is the Mount of Olives. This is the eastern gate that's being uh, spoken of here. And so he's brought, Ezekiel's brought to that gate that faced toward the east 
and then behold the glory of the uh, of uh, the God of Israel came from the way of the east his voice was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone uh, with his glory and uh, and it was in his appearance the glory of the Lord was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city, the visions which were like the vision which I saw by the river Chabar. And so that takes us all the way back. And what we, ha what we have here is a, des a description of the return of the glory of the Lord uh, back uh, into His uh, temple. And, uh, and at this point, the, the vision that is being shown to Ezekiel reaches really its, its climax, its, it, it, its pinnacle, the Lord's return uh, to His temple. No temple, no church, no anything is uh, anything without the presence of the Lord. And otherwise, it's just a building. And the without having the presence of the Lord, uh, the very thing that uh, all of these things exist for, then they're just uh, buildings that are uh, that are meaningless. Now, this return of the glory of Lord of the Lord back into Jerusalem. You might remember all the way back in Ezekiel chapters uh, 10 and 11, there was the record of the glory of the Lord leaving Jerusalem and leaving the temple because of the greatness of, uh, of their sin. And, uh, and so he, uh, here is a, uh, uh, the Lord returning. Uh, in, back in his glory into into this uh, this temple in order to uh, indwell it and uh, so you remember that the glory of the Lord had left in this kind of progressions at first because of the sins of the people of the nation he left the temple first and then he moved to the east gate and he hesitated uh, but their sin continued he moved then to the Mount of Olives and hesitated uh, almost this kind of an expression of, of how his heart was broken over the fact that his people, not the pagans, not the Philistines, not the Amorites or the Ammonites, but his people had chosen all of these other things other than him. And the abominations that they were practicing uh, drove him out of not only the temple, but out of the city. It's really a very, very sad scene. And ultimately, it, it, leads, it led to uh, their captivity. And all, all that event occurred some 25 years earlier than when Ezekiel receives this vision right now of, of a future return uh, of, of that glory. And uh, so uh, here is that glory returning. And you remember when we began the book of Ezekiel that he talked about the wheel within the wheels and then the angelic beings and then this great chariot that is carrying uh, the glory of God and he's having trouble even putting it into any kind of a description at all in a way that we can understand it and it left him undone. It is that very scene of the glory of God that he is watching now uh, enter in through that east gate as it, as it will uh, during that kingdom age and establish itself uh, once again within uh, this millennial uh, temple and his response to uh, ha having uh, seen all of this and uh, the, uh, the, this vision of the Lord and of, of his glory once again it tells us in verse 3 that he fell on his face that was his reaction uh, to, to all of it the Lord doesn't leave him very, very, very long. In verse 4, the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the east, which uh, uh, the gate which faces toward the east. The, the Spirit of God lifted Ezekiel up, brought him into the inner court that is immediately before uh, the temple there at the center of what you see in, in your drawing, uh, brought him into the inner court so that Ezekiel might be able to then watch the glory of the Lord, uh, then fill uh, the temple to watch the, here again is the apex of, of this return of 
of the glory of God. And Ezekiel heartbreakingly had imagined the impact upon him as a prophet, a lover of God, um, to be able to speak this to the Jewish, to see it first of all, but to speak this truth to the Jewish people as it, as, as it had to be, how heartbreaking would it have been to him to watch that glory leave and, and then now to see, uh, to see that glory uh, uh, return. And so the, uh, the, the, the temple uh, and, and all of these, uh, these events that are, are happening here, uh, the impact that it had upon him. And then the Lord addressed Ezekiel from the temple itself. Ezekiel says, I heard him speaking to me from the temple. Imagine that. Uh, while a man stood beside me, the angelic being, and uh, the Lord said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. At the establishment of this temple, uh, uh, there will be no more uh, within, uh, among the Jewish people or, or the history of the Jewish people uh, the kind of sin, the kind of idolatry and wickedness that drove him, him off. From this point forward, they will be uh, faithful worshipers of the Lord in that kingdom age. And nor, uh, no more shall the house of, the Lord, of Israel defile my holy name. They, shall, they nor their kings... Uh, by their harlotry or with the carcasses of their kings on their high places. And when they set, up, when they set their uh, threshold upon my threshold and their doorpost upon my doorpost with a wall between them and me, they defiled my holy name by the abominations which they committed and therefore I have consumed them in my anger. You remember that the idolatry, the, the just the sheer wickedness of the children of Israel reached a point under certain kings where they were actually bringing idols, uh, images of Asherah, gods from Damascus. And it wasn't enough that they were bringing them into Jerusalem. Even Solomon did that and filled the Mount of Olives with the false gods of the lands all around them. But the kings became even bolder toward the end and they were putting these gods in the very area of the temple. And that's what God is speaking about. I mean, the, this, 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 Jerusalem was supposed to be holy. The nation of Israel was supposed to be uh, holy. And then little by little, they, they, they defiled it and defiled it until it, just such an astonishing affront to God. Now they ask God uh, to uh, share uh, the temple grounds with these idols. And then ultimately, even the area of the altar in front of, of the temple and the holy place and the holy of holies. And and what an affront that was. And, and, and he reminds them of how uh, wicked they had, uh, they had been in all of this. And he said, now let them put their harlotry and the carcasses of their kings far from me. And I will uh, dwell in their midst forever. And son of man described the temple uh, to the house of Israel. And so he's saying, uh, Ezekiel, I want you to speak. Uh, Speak what I'm showing you here right now. I want you to speak it to the Jewish people, the captives in Tel Aviv. I want them to hear this orally, and then I want you also to write these things uh, down. And so this temple, as it's described in verses 40 through 43, they were to be it was to be described uh, to uh, the captives, and uh, and 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 here they they are and. Uh, hearing the wonder of this, but notice one of the motivations for it. Son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel that, that's a reason word, they may be ashamed uh, of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. And so here you have this, and we'll talk about it a little bit on Sunday morning next week as well, but this kind of uh, quaint, old-fashioned um, uh, notion of shame. Uh, but we're way past that today, aren't we? In the United States of America and in Western culture, we do everything that we can to make sure that nobody feels any shame for anything they do, no matter how shameful what they do is. But God is still a, a big believer in shame. Uh, he, does, he won't leave us there. But it, it is an important thing, uh, important part 
of getting us to come to God to begin with and then giving us an appreciation for His grace within our lives. When I was in elementary school, I had, um, I had uh, some uh, uh, teachers, and, and school teachers saved my life, by the way. It was the only kind of training I got in my life at all. Um, but, and some of them were just this side of Catholic nuns in terms of being uh, sharp and stern with you. They could do that back in those days. But one of the worst things you could ever have a teacher uh, say, Mrs. Jacobson or Mrs. Borders, to say to anyone in the classroom, uh, you should be ashamed of yourself. And I mean, you would just wilt in your desk under the weight of it and... and uh, and, the, and it was, it, they weren't lying. They weren't being unduly cruel. Uh, it was something, that you, by the time you drove a teacher like that to say something like that, you'd done something shameful. But it, it put a deterrent, it put a wall between doing that shameful thing uh, again. And of course today, we rename everything. We, we, uh, 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 we, we give some kind of a... Uh, a, a uh, you know, some kind of a title to, to every kind of shameful behavior in an attempt to remove all shame from wrongdoing. And our culture is, is suffering mightily from that kind of false protection. It, it is healthy to still feel shame over sin. Again, God doesn't want to leave us there, but, but it does bring us to God. And as is the case here, as I said, uh, to give us an appreciation for His grace when He steps in and He will not allow whatever shameful thing we've done to be uh, the final word in our life uh, or the thing that defines our, our life before other people. His grace uh, will rise up to do that if we uh, allow it. But they should have been ashamed for their iniquities and let them measure the pattern, and if, and that's an important word, if they are ashamed, to fail to be ashamed robs us of all kinds of blessings from uh, God because it's an indication that there's no repentance in my heart. There's no, the, the Bible says, Paul wrote and he said, godly sorrow worketh repentance. Uh, godly sorrow uh, is a beginning point a, per a person can have sorrow over their actions because they're having to deal with the consequences of their action. There's nothing noble about that. Godly sorrow looks and says, I am sorry that I have done this because of what it has done to the heart of God. And all sin is first and foremost against God before it is ever against anyone that we ever sin against. When we sin, we sin in God's living room. We sin against Him. But it is, godly sorrow is, I am sorry for what this has done to the heart of God, and I am sorry for what my actions or words ha have done to another person. And how do you know that there is uh, godly sorrow that is at work in our lives over a wrongdoing? Godly sorrow works repentance. We will endeavor to make it right. We will repent of that sin that has produced this, uh, this godly sorrow in our lives. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, then uh, make known to them uh, again, verbally, the design of the temple and its arrangement uh, and uh, its exits and its entrances, the entire design and all its ordinances, all its forms and all its laws. And in addition to making it known orally, he said, write it down, and that's why we have it in front of us tonight, write it down in their sight so they may uh, keep its whole design and all its ordinances and perform them. This is the law of the temple. The whole area surrounding the mountaintop is most holy. Behold, this is the law uh, of the temple. And, uh, and, and again, when Ezekiel communicated this verbally to them, when he then uh, wrote it down, uh, the people would have uh, just simply been astonished at, at how gracious God was being and again and infusing in them the consciousness that God was not through with them, that they did have a future and 
uh, and, and a, a hope. This was just, uh, uh, and God says, I want this written down because it's absolutely sure. It's a part of the future of, uh, 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 of the Jewish people during the kingdom age, but it's a part of our future as, as we'll be participants in the kingdom age uh, as well in a different way than, than they will be. Then he begins to describe in, in uh, uh, verse 13 the uh, altar of sacrifice that will be uh, outside uh, in that courtyard immediately in front of the, uh, the temple itself. And you see that marked by, I think, an A there in, uh, in your uh, diagram or, or, or plot map here. So these are the measurements of the altar in cubits. And cubit is, uh, is one cubit and a hand breadth. And the base is uh, uh, the base one cubit high and one cubit wide, with a rim all around its edge of one span. This is the height of the altar from the base to the on the ground to the lower edge, two cubits. The width of the ledge one cubit, from the smaller ledge to the larger ledge four cubits, and the width of the ledge one cubit. And so he's talking about an altar. Yes, your head can spin. Uh, he's talking about the altar in which the sacrifices would be uh, uh, burnt before the Lord in, this, in the kingdom age. Um, it, is, it is made up of four tiers, and, and the total height of, uh, of this altar will be 19 and a half feet, though about uh, slightly less than two feet of it will be uh, underground. The altar her, uh, hearth is uh, four cubits high with four horns extending upward from the hearth, uh, so it is uh, 21 feet squared. Uh, the altar hearth is 12 cubits long, 12 wide, uh, and square at its four corners. The ledge, 14 cubits long and 14 wide on its four sides with a rim and a half, a cubit around it, uh, its base, and one cubit all around and its steps uh, face uh, toward uh, the east. One of the things that's fascinating in studying uh, all of this is that um, you know, everyone who does study it and, and then writes commentaries on it or just purely studies it realizes that there are similarities to this temple, to, uh, to, uh, to Solomon's temple and to the tabernacle and what is described by Moses in the law of Moses. But there are tremendous differences between Solomon's temple and this temple as well. And not only in terms of dimensions, but there are certain furnishings uh, certain altars. There is, for instance, uh, there is no Ark of the Covenant in this temple that will be built during the Kingdom Age. There are other furnishings that are, are, uh, are not described as being a part of that temple. There are certain sacrifices that will be offered at this temple during the Kingdom Age. Uh, not all sacrifices that were offered uh, under Solomon and, and that temple all, all of them are offered then during the kingdom age. And it's fascinating to, to, to wonder why nobody can come up with an answer about it, but to say, why are these furnishings left out? And then why are these offerings left out in, in, concerning worship in the kingdom age? And uh, so I don't have an answer for you at all. I guess if you could uh, give the time to it and you say, well, don't you have the time? Is it what we pay you for? I had to golf uh, this week a lot and uh, was able to do it. No, there's only so many things we can get to, but uh, there, there's, without a doubt, there's probably a reason for all of it, but we may not, may not find out until, uh, you know, until that day. It is important to realize that everything under the Old Covenant, uh, all of the worship that was involved in the temple, also involved at the tabernacle, that all of it spoke of Christ. Uh, Jesus said to the Jewish religious leaders, you do search the scriptures, for in them you think you have everlasting life. But these are they that testify of me. The entire Old Testament speaks of Christ. It is imagery that points to Christ in, in a beautiful, uh, powerful uh, way. And uh, the bronze altar, as it was represented there in the uh, the tabernacle and in Solomon's uh, temple, the first thing that you would encounter when you would uh, begin to approach the temple, you would enter into a courtyard that sat immediately in front of the entrance of, uh, of the holy place, 
And the, as you would enter that courtyard, there would be this uh, single great thing that was called the uh, bronze altar. Here we're not told what uh, kind of material will be used in, in the fashioning, uh, fashioning of this altar. And on that altar, uh, the bronze, the, the, the burnt offerings were offered, the grain offerings, the peace offerings, the sin offerings, the trespass offerings, all of them were uh, uh, offered there. And by, by keeping that courtyard very, very simple with just one single furnishing, uh, the bronze altar in that temple, it, it communicated just one great thing to any person that was endeavoring to approach God. And remember, the temple represented the presence of God. Uh, to, to come closer to the temple was to become closer to uh, what represented the presence of God. And that altar reminded everyone who wanted to draw near to God that God can only be approached by sinful man on the basis of sacrifice and on the basis of sacrifice uh, for sin. In other words, that man's sin cannot be ignored, it cannot be overlooked, it cannot be minimized, it has to be faced, it has to be confessed, it has to be addressed, and it has to be uh, dealt with. And it was to drive home the point, a necessary point in the, in the heart and the mind of sinners like us, is that sin is a serious thing. Uh, do you think sin is being taken seriously? In the culture we live in uh, today, I don't think it is. And, uh, 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 and, uh, 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 but here was this thing that reminded us of the fact that, that sin was serious business. You, th you hear people uh, clamor all the time related to Christianity and the Old Testament and the Jews and everything. And there's that bloody religion and all of the sacrifices that, that they offered to, uh, you know, to God and they don't want to have uh, anything to do with that and, and all high and mighty about their rejection of, of this on a kind of superficial means and yet will kill babies without number and, uh, and not even uh, blink at it. Uh, but uh, boy, uh, kill a lamb as an example of the seriousness of sin. And uh, the whole world uh, gets up in, in arms uh, over it. Now, it, it communicated uh, what we need to have communicated to us and that sin is very, very serious and that we cannot approach God independent of sacrifice. We cannot approach God independent of salvation and a means of salvation, not that we choose, but that He chooses as a means for us uh, to, to be saved. And so it, it drove uh, all of that, uh, that home. You could not get to the Holy of Holies uh, in, in uh, any temple without uh, a sacrifice for your sins. And the Bible teaches that the, the tabernacle, the temple, uh, was a, a kind of a model of heaven. And if you couldn't approach the holy place or the holy of holies without a sacrifice for sin, then you sure aren't going to get into what all of that is a model of, and that is heaven, without a sacrifice for sin. And without a, a the sacrifice for sin that pleases God and pleases heaven. And that altar represents Jesus Christ, and it represents concerning Him the salvation that, that He has provided to us, that His sacrifice is the full and satisfying sacrifice that allows God to forgive sinners like us and remain just in doing so. So again, as we saw last time, uh, when, uh, we, in terms of the sacrifices that will be offered during the kingdom age, uh, all of these things under the law of Moses and under the Old Testament looked forward to the coming of Christ. These things will now uh, all take place during the kingdom age as a reminder to the Jews uh, of, uh, of who Christ uh, was and who He is as they now recognize Him as Messiah. Remember, they went to the temple and went to the temple and went to the temple and they did all the sacrifices and all the sacrifices and they kept the Shabbat and all of these things and Jesus never entered their mind. Does not enter their mind today. And they'll reach the kingdom age and they'll have no history of realizing what all of it was intended to do and that was to prepare them for their Messiah. Do you realize that Jews today, if they, if they obey the, 
the teaching of the rabbis. They are not allowed to read the book of Daniel because it speaks so powerfully to Jesus as their Messiah that it's to be kept from them. Isaiah chapter 53 is never read in the annual readings in any synagogue in the world. That's how determined their leaders are to keep them from recognizing Jesus as, as their Christ. And God isn't going to rob them of that. Here for a thousand years, they will be able to reorient and to realize this is what this was speaking about all along. It spoke about Christ all along. And then to have it settle in an appreciation for how all of it did speak of Him and the goodness of of God and sending Him as our Savior. And so uh, the bronze altar will be uh, prominent here and in, uh, e- even in the, in the kingdom age in communicating these things uh, concerning Christ. He tells us then in verse 18, He said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord God, these are the ordinances uh, for the altar on the day in which it is made for sacrificing burnt offerings on it and for sprinkling blood on it. That is the sin offering. So here you have this altar that is, is going to be in place. Excuse me, and it's going to be, um, sacrifices are going to be offered on it, but it must be consecrated. It must be dedicated to the Lord before it can ever have an offering on it. Because it is, two of the offerings that are going to be offered upon that altar is the burnt offering and the sin offering. And why does God allow burnt offerings and sin offerings to be offered during the kingdom age when other offerings are not? The burnt offering, the unique thing about the burnt offering under the law of Moses is that when that animal was uh, given by a worshiper of God to be sacrificed uh, to God as an expression of their worship, the thing that was unique about uh, the burnt offering is that after it was sacrificed, its, uh, its carcass was completely burned upon the fire. And, and a burnt offering speaks of a worshiper's total consecration to God. Uh, it, is, it, it, it is to say, God, it is to approach God in essence by means of sacrifice and say, God, my entire life is yours. Uh, as that offering was burnt in its entirety upon the altar, my whole life is yours. Not 90%, not 80%, not 95%, not 25%. It all belongs to you. I want to be a living sacrifice. And so uh, I continue to live uh, physically, but in my heart I have died to my own will. I live for your will. It's what Paul calls that living sacrifice in Romans chapter 12. And that's what it represented to the worship, uh, worshiper. And Jesus, of course, it represented in him his complete sacrifice, and, or, or submission rather, to the will of God. And those amazing words in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if there be any other way for man to be saved, let this cup, the cup of Calvary, the suffering, the separation from God the Father is a part of all of it. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And that sacrifice spoke of the Messiah who would come and would be that and lay down his will in that kind of a measure to God the Father. And so here is the, the burnt offerings and then, and then the sin offerings will be uh, a, a part of, of the, the, uh, the offerings that will be uh, uh, given as well. And, uh, and uh, that, a, that a sinner can only be in a relationship with God, again, reminding us on the basis of sacrifice, on uh, the basis of the death of a God-chosen innocent uh, for the sake of the guilty. And that's what the animal represented as a, 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 a image, a type of Jesus who was to come and, and pay the ultimate uh, price for the forgiveness of our sins. And here is the, the consecration of the altar as it's described in verse 19. And you shall give a young bull for a sin offering to the priests. And the Levites and those who are uh, uh, those, those who are of the seed of Zadok, who uh, approach me to minister to me, says the Lord. You shall take some of its blood and put it on the four horns of the altar 
on the four corners of the ledge and on the rim around it. Thus you shall cleanse it and make atonement for it. Imagery from the law of Moses. And then you shall take the bull of the sin offering and burn it in the appointed place of the, tab- of the temple outside the sanctuary. And that's what was to take place the first day. On the second day you shall offer a kid of the goats without blemish for a sin offering, and they shall cleanse the altar as they cleansed it with the bull. And when you have finished cleansing it, you shall offer a young bull without blemish and a ram from the flock without blemish. Uh, When you offer them before the Lord, the priest shall throw salt on them and they will offer them up as a burnt offering to the Lord. And every day you you shall do this for seven days. You shall prepare a goat for a sin offering. Uh, They... Uh, They shall also prepare a young bull and a ram from the flock, both without blemish. Seven days they shall make atonement for the altar and purify it and so consecrate it. Not only were the sacrifices to be holy and uh, unto the Lord, but the altar itself was to be consecrated and purified, made holy in, in this way. And when these days are over, it shall be on the eighth day, and thereafter that the priest shall offer your burnt offerings and your peace offerings on the altar, and I will accept you, uh, says the Lord. And so uh, the, the, the dedication of that, uh, that altar. And then in chapter 44, then he, that is the Lord, took me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary which faces toward the east, but it was shut. Again, this gate that's on the outer, out, outside the outer wall, uh, again, looking over the uh, Kidron Valley and, and toward the Mount of Olives. And uh, the gate was shut, and the Lord said to me, uh, it was now shut, and the Lord said to me, this gate shall be shut, it shall not be opened, and no man shall enter by it, because the Lord God of Israel has entered by it, uh, therefore it shall be shut. And so that gate that the Lord uh, uh, enters uh, into uh, the, the area of the temple, returning with His glory, uh, Him having used it for that purpose now, it's not to be used for uh, anything else. And so uh, Ezekiel had seen all of this go on. The gate was made holy by virtue of, uh, of all of that. And the closing of that gate, the shutting off of that gate so that it wouldn't be used by other people for any other purpose, it wasn't a bad thing that God was, uh, is saying related to that. It, it, it communicates uh, God's intention that uh, to never ever leave this, uh, this temple as he had been uh, forced to by the sin of his people uh, before. And as for the prince, he begins to talk about a prince here. Uh, because he is the prince, he may sit in it uh, to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gateway and go out the same way. So he is able to eat something related to sacrifices perhaps associated with the temple. He's able to eat in a covered area associated with the gate, but he does not use, uh, use that gate. So he's able to partake in some kind of a communal meal uh, with, with God uh, there. And, and uh, and and uh, and that will be he'll have an access that nobody else uh, will have. Now he's going to talk about this prince here a little bit tonight, and then he'll talk a little bit more about him in the final chapters as we'll look at it next week. And important to know a little bit about who uh, who this prince is. We know that this prince cannot be uh, Jesus. It's often identif- he's often identified as Jesus, but it can't be Jesus because as we'll see when we get into chapter 45 verse 22, uh, he offers a sin sacrifice for himself, something that Jesus would never need to do. And, uh, and in uh, chapter 46, verse 16, he does uh, the same thing for his sons, uh, which eliminates uh, Jesus not having any kind of physical descendants in that way. Uh, personally, I'm of the opinion 
that this prince has already been identified in the book of Ezekiel as uh, King David and uh, once in uh, chapter 34 and again in chapter 37 let me uh, read the two verses to you for your sake of your memory uh, in Ezekiel chapter 34 the Lord declares I will establish one shepherd over them and he shall feed them my servant David he shall feed them and be their shepherd and I the Lord will be their God and my servant David a prince among them I the Lord have spoken Ezekiel chapter 37 verse 24 David my servant shall be king over them and they shall uh, all have one shepherd they shall uh, also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them uh, then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob my servant where your fathers dwell and they shall dwell there they their children and their children's children forever and my servant David shall be their prince uh, forever the Bible teaches that uh, Jesus second coming that we as Christians were going to return to the earth with him uh, from uh, heaven and uh, will have been in heaven with him for the seven-year period of of the tribulation and when we return with him at the second coming as, as Christians we now will return with him for the purpose of ruling and reigning with him during uh, in, in other words assisting him in his reign during that that thousand year uh, kingdom age and will be his servants during that reign in which he reigns in in righteousness with a rod of iron the whole world uh, uh, can't wait uh, and, and he'll do so from the, the city of Jerusalem there'll be no nonsense no crime no wars no robberies we won't need locks on our whatevers uh, during the kingdom age it'll be uh, things will be will be free of, of that. The passages that speak to us is, is ruling and reigning with him. First Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 11. Now may our, uh, the, our God and Father him, uh, himself and the, our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. We will return with him. Revelation chapter 20 verse 6, uh, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. People get a little flipped out about this because they read at the end of the thousand year reign Satan will be loosed one more time uh, to tempt people in a rebellion against uh, God uh, the people that populate the earth will not all of them be born again they will stay in line they will obey the commandments of God because essentially they're forced to do it but it'll uh, they'll look for an opportunity to uh, to uh, uh, rebel against him and people think wow what I mean could could I get deceived and could I, you know, lose my salvation and fall for that kind of thing? And the Bible teaches that by the time uh, this kingdom age occurs for us as Christians, our, our corruption will have put on incorruption, our mortal will have put on immortality. We will have a, a new body made for eternity. Uh, we will be in no place of ever being deceived at all again. Uh, the everlasting life that is now ours will, uh, will continue in, in that uh, that that period and so we we will with the Old Testament Saints including David uh, have have that new body and it appears that while in ruling and reigning with the Lord while someone like me might end up uh, ruling and reigning uh, on the Lord's behalf over uh, uh, some suburb of Toledo uh, Ohio uh, that King David is going to be ruling and reigning over Jerusalem itself and I won't begrudge him that uh, not uh, not one bit at all and then here we have some instruction concerning uh, the worship and service at the future temple here in verse 4 
and also he brought me uh, by way of the north gate to the front of the temple and so I looked and behold the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord and I fell on my face again uh, the the glory uh, of the Lord producing this response uh, in him and uh, the the fear uh, of the Lord that marked his life I hope we all have a healthy dose of the fear uh, of God. We'll never worship Him properly. We'll never appreciate Him uh, properly. We'll never know intimacy with Him uh, without uh, a fear of Him. And the Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well and see with your eyes and hear with your ears all that I say to you concerning all the ordinances of the house of the Lord and all its laws. Mark well who may enter the house and and all who go out from the sanctuary. And so different from how debased the worship uh, of God had been uh, during uh, the, when the Babylonians conquered uh, Jerusalem and destroyed the temple because of the wickedness of, of, uh, and idolatry of the worship there. It'll be a complete contrast. God says this is who gets to uh, approach and enter the house and go out with favor from the sanctuary. Now say to the rebellious, to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, O house of Israel, let us have no more of all your abominations. And I think that's a good thing. Maybe that no more is something some of us need to hear. We keep pandering to our flesh, to our sin. We keep giving it room. We keep feeding it uh, and giving it a place within our lives. And... Uh, and, and here, uh, the importance of coming to a place at some point in our life and the power of the Holy Spirit and saying, no more. This is not going to mark my life uh, anymore. I don't want these abominations. I'm going to turn wholeheartedly to the Lord. And when you, uh, when you brought in foreigners uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in the flesh to be in my sanctuary to defile it, my house talking about the temple. And when you offered my food, the, the fat and the blood, when they broke my covenant because of all your abominations, and you have not kept charge of my holy things, but you have set others to keep charge of my sanctuary. Again, they were allowing all kinds of idolatry into the temple. Ultimately, the Gentiles in the form of the Babylonians came in and all of their paganism and stomped all the way through uh, the temple before it, it was destroyed. Things got so bad among the religious establishment at the time that uh, for sure there had to be priests that were continuing to offer the sacrifices to the Lord and, and all, but they were taking other responsibilities in terms of doorkeepers or, or housekeeping related to the temple, and they kind of contracted it out to foreigners. This was now uh, below them uh, to do these kind of, uh, these kind of things. I mean, what a, what a sense of of self-importance a person must have to, to say, I'm too good to do that uh, for God. And yet it characterized uh, the, not just the people of the nation of Israel, uh, the spiritual leaders. It's an awful thing. And thus says the Lord God, no foreigner uncircumcised in heart, uh, in flesh, shall enter my sanctuary, including any foreigner who is among the children of Israel. And the Levites who went far from me when Israel went astray, who strayed uh, away from me after their idols, they shall bear their iniquity. And so here you have uh, the Levites who were a, a, a spiritual class of people among uh, the Jews and when they should have made a stand against sin, certainly sin related to the nation, sin related to the temple, uh, when the people began clamoring and wanting their idolatry and their wickedness, instead of standing strong against it, they caved and they accommodated uh, the people. And uh, God remembers the Levites that did that. And so he, he tells them that uh, they will not have their former uh, a kind of responsibilities in this temple because uh, of what they, what they did. And I, I think that we should pray for every Christian leader, in, especially in the United States of America, the pressure that is on leaders to accommodate anything and everything and all kinds of nonsense at the expense of the glory of God. It's heavy on all of us. And, and a great pressure and, and, the, and the need of, of the prayers of God's people to stand uh, against it. And 
Here is this, uh, here he holds them responsible, and that here's a grace word though in verse 11 yet. They shall be ministers in my sanctuary as gatekeepers of the house and ministers of the house. They shall slay burnt offerings and the sacrifice for my people, and they shall stand before them to minister to them. Because they ministered uh, to them before their idols and caused the house of Israel to fall into iniquity, therefore I have raised my hand in an oath against them, says the Lord God, that they shall bear their iniquity. And they shall not come near to me to minister to me as priests, nor uh, come near uh, uh, any of my holy things, nor into the most holy place, but they shall bear their shame, there's that word again, and their abominations which they have committed. And then here's another grace word in the midst of all of it. Nevertheless, I will make them keep charge of the temple for all its work and for all that uh, has to be done in it. And then he speaks, uh, I think, wonderfully here in uh, verse 15, but the priests, the Levites, and specifically the sons of Zadok, who kept the charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me, uh, they shall come near me to minister to me. They shall stand before me to offer to me the fat and the blood, says the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary, and they shall come near my table to minister to me, and they shall keep my uh, charge. And so the priests that were of the lineage of, uh, of Zadok, they will have the, the supreme the, uh, duties, the, the most holy and, uh, of, of the responsibilities. You might remember that Zadok was the appointed chief priest during the reign of King Solomon, who was King David's son, and, uh, and he remained uh, faithful to the Lord when God's people turned away uh, from him and sinned during that time in, in Israel's history. Zadok and the priests that were in Zadok's uh, lineage, they remained faithful to uh, God in their calling. And it's important as we see this here in this passage that uh, to realize that if nobody else notices, if nobody else appreciates your faithfulness, uh, that God does. And he noticed it with the priests of, uh, of Zadok and, and he uh, rewarded them uh, uh, for it. And I, I don't think that these, these priests are necessarily going to be uh, physical descendants, uh, probably bloodline of the Jews, of course, but I don't know that they, they necessarily will be uh, uh, blood descendants of, of, of Zadok specifically, but certainly it, it may, they'll be his, his moral and his uh, spiritual descendants uh, for sure. And then several Mosaic uh, laws governing the priests are repeated uh, by the Lord in uh, verse 17. And it shall be whenever they enter the gates of the inner court that they shall put on linen garments. No wool shall come upon them while they minister within the gates of the inner court or within the house. They shall have linen turbans on their head and linen trousers on their bodies. They shall not clothe themselves with anything that causes sweat. And when they go out, uh, uh, go out to the outer court, to the outer court to the people, they shall take off their garments in which they have ministered and leave them in the holy chambers and put on other garments, uh, you know, civilian garments, and in their holy garments they shall not uh, sanctify the people. And so linen is an image of, of, of purity in the Scriptures. Uh, anything that was made of wool because it came from an animal, uh, rendered, a dead animal rendered you uh, ceremonially unclean, and so it was all to be linen. And then uh, the, the further... Uh, you know, requirement of them is they shall not shave their heads uh, nor let their hair grow long, but they shall keep their hair well trimmed, whatever that is. So here we live in this culture where, uh, you know, a good portion of, uh, of the men uh, shave their heads and uh, it looks good. You've got to have a certain kind of head for that, though. And uh, sometimes you don't have options, but it, it, does, it does take a certain kind of head. And then other people grow their hair long. But what he's talking about here, not really a fashion thing, in, in the ancient world, uh, both the shaving of head and the growing of hair long were signs of mourning, and, and there, will, there will not be mourning during the kingdom age. And no priest shall drink wine when he enters the inner court. He won't be under the influence of anything other than the Holy Spirit. Uh, during the kingdom age, and they shall not take as a wife a widow or a divorced woman, 
but take uh, virgins of the descendants of the house of Israel or widows of priests. And they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the unholy and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. All of this was intended, uh, it was a stricter requirement that God puts upon the priests, even as he puts it on leaders today. And, and it was to communicate the fact that uh, the, to keep in front of people uh, the, that there is uh, the, the difference between holy and unholy living and uh, clean and unclean living and, and to extol uh, the, the, the importance of holiness. In controversy, they may stand as judges. So in terms of judging disputes and judge it according to my judgments, that is his wor God's word, they shall keep my laws and my statutes and all my appointed meetings and they shall hallow my Sabbaths. They shall not defile themselves by coming near a dead person. Uh, they be rendered ceremony unclean. Uh, death will be very rare during the kingdom age, but it will occur. And uh, if somebody dies at 100 years old during the kingdom age, it'll be like a cause of mourning, like they died so young, because people will live through, in general, uh, the, the entire length of, of, of the thousand years. And so... Uh, but they were not to defile themselves by coming near a, a dead person only for a father or a mother or a son or a daughter or a brother or unmarried sister. May they uh, then touch that body, defile themselves ceremonially, and then uh, the, uh, the priest can then be cleansed. Uh, 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 they shall, uh, in a series of ceremonies that would go over a period of seven days. And on the day that he goes to the sanctuary to minister, in the sanctuary he must offer his sin offering in the inner court, says the Lord. And it shall be in regard to their inheritance that I am their inheritance. You shall give them no possession in Israel, for I am their possession. They shall eat the grain offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, every dedicated thing in Israel shall be theirs, the best of all the first fruits of any kind, and every sacrifice of any kind from all your sacrifices shall be the priests, and also you shall give the priests the first of your ground meal and cause a blessing to uh, rest on your house. And so, as was the case during uh, the law of Moses, the priests did not uh, have uh, land that was allocated to them in, uh, as a tribe in the way that the other uh, tribes were. And they were, they were not to kind of head out and have uh, uh, jobs to, to put food on the table. They were to serve full-time at the tabernacle or at the temple. And God allocated a portion of the sacrifices and the offerings to sustain them uh, materially. Uh, 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 that was their portion. Uh, the privilege for them was, you say, oh boy, they didn't get to have, you know, 10 acres someplace in a cabin by a stream. No, God says, listen, you won't mind it uh, because you're, I am your portion. The privilege is to be able to serve in this kind of proximity with me and to represent me in this kind of way, which is a privilege. And the priest shall not eat anything, uh, bird or beast that dies naturally uh, or is torn by wild animals. And so anything that dies an unnatural death, they were not, uh, will not be able to eat or anything that's been uh, torn by a, a, a wild beast. And so we'll stop there tonight and uh, we'll look to finish picking it up in chapter 45 to the end of the book uh, next week and uh, celebrate with our customary uh, celebration. Let's stand together now and let's close in prayer.